Why was the great emancipator playing politics with an 11-year-old? We'll ask these and other questions when we come back with Karen Winnick, author of Mr. Lincoln's Whiskers on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Hear that? You just got to love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except, of course, for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or steaks sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads, from computers to produce. We even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Karen Winnick, author of several children's picture books set in the Civil War era. We've been talking about one of them, a book called Mr. Lincoln's Whiskers, that tells the well-known story of Grace Bedell, the 11-year-old girl who suggested to Lincoln that he grow a beard after he was elected president. But it tells that story in a absolutely uh, engaging and, and uh, really moving way with uh, wonderful pictures and a very carefully chosen text, also illustrated with the reproductions of the letters that Grace and Lincoln wrote to one another. Uh, it's a book that, that I, I really uh, feel is, is a great book to introduce children to the Lincoln era with uh, for, for very young children who want to see some beautiful pictures and hear the story at the same time. Uh, Karen, when we left off, we were talking about the fact that Lincoln, in his letter to Grace Bedell in 1860, rejected the suggestion that he grow whiskers that he had made that she had made to him. 
And then he went around ahead and did it anyway. What do you think he was doing? Well, what I think is interesting is he actually was asking her opinion. Um, do you not think people would think it's a piece of silly affection or affectation? And um, here he was asking the advice of an 11-year-old because I think that um, he perceived himself as a simple homespun man. Um, he was, you know, was from the prairie, and whiskers were in fashion at the time or becoming fashionable, and he didn't necessarily perceive of himself in that vein. So the interesting thing is he, he was just asking an 11-year-old girl's advice. Which certainly carries through your theme of empowerment. He He's suggesting to her that, that he values her advice. Yes. Now, in, in later years, Lincoln uses this technique on, on a much different scale, this idea of sort of playing his own devil's advocate. There's an incident in 1862 in September uh, when he's trying to wait for the right moment to release the Emancipation Proclamation, and a delegation comes to the White House to argue in favor of emancipation. And Lincoln does what he did with Grace. He takes the opposite tack. He says, what good would such a document do? Wouldn't it be like the Pope's bull against the comet? You can't argue with outer space. And yet he's already decided to do this. Yes, I guess he he's trying to sound out other opinions and asking rhetorical questions, and um, and it's part of his personality. It's an interesting style that, that he, he uses. It, it, does, it has that value, as you point out, of, of giving the other person a sense of being involved, of being empowered in the mm -hmm. decision. Uh, but at the same time, it lets him try out his ideas. So it's a it's a, a clever rhetorical technique. He he opened his White House every morning for people to come in and see him, and um, I'm sure there were many conversations of that vein. That's true. And he he opened his, his office door, let people in, and uh, I, I guess he regularly used that technique. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you about your more recent book set in the Civil War. This is Cassie's Sweet Berry Cassie's Pie. Cassie's Sweet Berry Pie. Uh, subtitled A Civil War Story. Yes. Tell us the plot of this story. Okay, well, this is interesting. First of all, my, my picture books are fiction. They're, they're based mostly on Abraham Lincoln's story, Mr. Lincoln's Whiskers, is based on something that actually happened. And in this case, Cassie's Sweet Berry Pie, Cassie is a fictional heroine but it's based on something that I read in a book that I was doing research on where um, a woman who lived in Marion, a very small town in Mississippi, um, the, well, the Union soldiers had, um, had occupied Mississippi, and they were confiscating all available food and carting it off, and this woman was warned of that, and um, she painted um, her children. It was one paragraph maybe um, 12 lines in a book of research I was using. And she uh, painted her children's faces and hid the food. And when the Union soldiers came, they um, were frightened off. They thought there was, um, they, they, they didn't say exactly what disease they thought it was, but they were frightened off and she scared them away. And the minute I read that paragraph, I thought, well, this would make a wonderful picture book for children. But Again, I write fiction, and so I created this character of Cassie. I had her father off fighting, and um, her mother is at the hospital taking care of wounded soldiers, and she's minding her brother's and sister, her brother and sister. And um, 
the neighbor comes to warn her that the Union soldiers are coming and they're stealing food. And so she's in the process at the time of baking a um, a um, huckleberry pie. And, of course, when you do um, these kind of books, you have to do a lot of research and make sure the berries are the proper berries and everything is historically correct. So huckleberries were the berries that grew around there, and these were quite precious. And so she's baking a pie, and um, while she's trying to hide the food, her sister starts eating some of the berries and getting the red juice on her face which gives Cassie an idea. So she heats up the cabin and makes her brother and sister climb into bed and paints their faces. But you see, you have to go deeper, and this is part of the process of a picture book. I'm always trying to get at some basic human truth. And um, what I went for here was that, um, I mean, basically what I'm trying to say is that there are good people on both sides of the conflict. So there is a cat, and he gets um, he's he's there. His name is Boots. And when the Union soldiers come, there's one soldier that Cassie sees is not much older than she is. And the Union soldiers are looking around, and the cat goes under the bed where everything's hidden, and um, gets berry juice on his face. And the young soldier pulls the cat out and sees, but he doesn't give her give Cassie away. And and when the soldiers have pulled back this curtain, they see that the children have the berry juice and they run off. But again, the young soldier doesn't give her away. So the story involves Cassie's um, braveness and cleverness. Cleverness is a better word, really. But also the fact that Cassie sees that there's not just bad and good, but there are good people on both sides of the conflict. Well, it's... Uh, uh that's an important message, which I want to get back to in a bit. Let me ask you a few other questions about it as yes. we work our way to that. It is a fascinating story, the subterfuge of the, the civilians under threat of losing all their goods to the military uh, and using a clever tactic, in this case, to fool them, uh, taken from history and now here applied to a fictional setting. Um, as you point out, you did research. You have the, the right to berries, uh, the the furnitures of the period, the clothing, uh, what what we in the business call the material culture uh, is accurate. I would say if any of our listeners were to read this book, they might uncharitably uh, try to figure out when were the Union soldiers actually in Marion, uh, which I admit I did a little research to see if I could dig that up. I can't place them there at the same time that Lee was in Pennsylvania, but news might have taken a long time to travel from Pennsylvania back to Mississippi. So perhaps, right. uh, perhaps, uh, the, although the things might have not have happened at the same time in real life, they might have thought they were happening at the same time in the book. Okay. Well, um, you know, I think that um, this was Cassie's perception of where her dad was. Mm-hmm. But even Marion is such a small town that I was doing research on... Um, Vicksburg for another story, and um, I was, um, well, it's actually not, so Marion is not terribly far from Meridian, as I understand it, but I was down in Vicksburg, and um, the historian that I was working with had not heard of Marion, so it's it's a very small place. (laughs) It, it, It looks like, from what I can tell from the maps, that 
uh, Union cavalry came through Meridian, Grierson's raid in April 1863, might have gone through Marion. Uh, but then after Vicksburg Falls in July of 1864, uh, I'm sorry, 1863, of course, July 4th of 1863, uh, about the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg, the news would have traveled back to, to Cassie uh, o- over some period of time, so she might well have perceived her father was still in Pennsylvania. Eventually, in, in February of 1864, Sherman launches a raid from uh, from the area of Vicksburg into Meridian, a, a scorched earth raid that sort of prefigures what he's going to do in Georgia, which has exactly the kind of behavior that you portray in the book, where Union soldiers are going, looking for resources to destroy, to take them away from the Confederates. And so uh, if one were to want to focus an exact time, the most likely time for such a raid would be February of 1864. But I would take this a step further and say that if you are telling a story as you are here, especially from a child's perspective, it's the kind of story that would come down through a family, that would be told over and over again, that would be an oral tradition, and the essence of it would be maintained, what the children did, and the important lesson that that you, you bring out. And the details of all of our childhood stories and all of our family stories don't always match up with history. My wife will point out, if I tell a story that's two weeks old, I'll usually get the details wrong. Uh-huh. But I'll get the important message right, I'll say. Well, the thing is that, I, as I said, I write fiction, mm-hmm. and you hold to the facts as best you can, but I want to just go back to Mr. Lincoln's whiskers for a minute because mm-hmm. there was no record whatsoever of what exactly gave Grace the idea. Right. So I had to... Um, I used fiction in that sense, I imagined the moon coming in and casting a shadow on his face. So, again, you gather all the facts, which is um, great fun. It's a lot of detective work, whether it's um, through the Internet, through um, contacting historical societies, libraries, whatever, and um, following a trail. But once you have that, you, you almost imagine yourself in that time and place, and the emotions that people have have not changed through the centuries, but the details have. So you're you're, you're um, projecting yourself back into time and imagining you're in that time and place to tell a story. So, well, I had a similar conversation on this program with uh, uh, Jeff Shera, the author of several novels, yes. son of uh, author of The Killer Angels, and we talked about very much the same things. That he writes historical fiction also, and how the details are, are the framework, and I will say I find nothing more tedious to read than a historical novel where all the details are exactly right, but the story is all wrong, uh, where people aren't behaving as people behaved in that time and place, or as they behave in any time and place for that matter, where the author doesn't understand, doesn't reveal any understanding of human nature. Uh, it doesn't really impress me that they know the right caliber of the musket if they have uh, Civil War people behaving in a 21st century manner or uh, uh, or, or in a simply unrealistic, inhuman sort of manner. So so I, I certainly would agree with your, your premise that you take the research as far as you can and then you then the, the key point is to apply a story, is to derive well, a story from it. Yeah, that's, that's fiction, but of course the best thing is to get it all right. But there are times that you actually have to um, sacrifice some of the exact facts for the sake of the story. 
another um, aspect of that was when um, Grace Bedell went to the um, railroad station, I think her, her sisters and their boyfriends were with her, mm-hmm. that I had created Levant, her brother, as the protagonist, and it was important for the story that he be there. Mm-hmm. So again, when you're telling a story, the minute you use dialogue, it's, it's, it's um, fiction anyhow. Right. So, I mean, there, there are licenses that you have to take, but the fewer the better. Did she really... Are her brothers and sisters fictional? All of the well, names are, are are true, and they did argue politically okay. all the time. Yes, they, there was disagreement in the family. So, right, you, you frame the story with the 1860 election, with the family mm-hmm. debating over the dinner table. Yes, and they know. did do that. Right. That, now, the... Uh, let me pause a moment here and think where we're going with this. This idea that, so you want to get them right, you, you sometimes have to sacrifice a historical detail to make a more important point. Uh, again, I would strongly agree with that, and, and I've had debates with others on this issue about uh, people who get the pedantic details right but miss the larger story. Here's an example that comes to mind from the movie Glory about the 54th Massachusetts, uh, the Black Regiment, uh, that came out some years ago, in which the officer, uh, the white officer of the unit, punishes one of the soldiers by whipping him. And historians will point out, well, there was no flogging in the Union Army. That was just not a punishment that was used. It had been abolished some years earlier. But the filmmaker's point was not to illustrate that they did flogging, but to show that the irony that this white abolitionist officer had to administer a almost slave-like punishment to one of the black soldiers to teach them to be soldiers to, so they could fight for their freedom, that, that being a soldier for freedom means giving up your freedom temporarily. And the irony of, of, of this whole situation was an accurate historical point. Uh, soldiers who fought on either side for what they perceived as freedom had to submit to military discipline. So the filmmaker made in a graphic way a point with a technical detail wrong, but a larger point correct. I uh, understand that, but I, I do feel strongly that I, I struggle to get the technical aspects right, too. I mean, it, yeah. it's a struggle. I mean, and sometimes you, you don't quite get it right, but it's always um, an attempt to do, it, mm-hmm. to do it all right. I mean, I want to say something deep about the human condition, but at the same time I want to get the details Correct. So it's well, a struggle to 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 get there. That, that's. Let me challenge you then on, on the deeper part of the book and ask ask you about that. You're, as you say, the the Yankee soldiers are portrayed as they come in breaking or threatening to break in the house. Mm-hmm. As uh, on the surface, they look like the bad guys when they arrive. They're they're, right. they're coming to steal the food. But one of them shows his humanity by catching on to the the subterfuge. The children don't really have measles. They've just been painted to look that way. Mm-hmm. He figures it out, but he some he communicates to Cassie that he knows it, but he's not going to say anything. And he gets his fellow soldiers to leave without taking anything. So the message is there is there are good people on both sides. Yes. Now, how far would you push that message? It, would, could you set the same book? in Germany at the end of the Second World War? Well, for sure there were people um, that saved lives and hid people and 
Absolutely, and those stories come out all the time. I mean, there are no all bad people and all good people. I mean, in, in terms of one human being, there is good and evil. And so many stories have been written just about those subjects. And um, yes, I think you can probably use that theme. I mean, that's what I meant about basic human truths. Those, those themes are with us in our lives. Well, if if we, and I suppose most people wouldn't argue, I, and I would not argue that that in any society you will find good and bad people. But could you say that there are good and bad societies? That 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 some are that that the fact that some good people exist even in the worst society doesn't necessarily mean that all societies are of equal moral value. No, of course not. But, but I would argue that in every society, there's um, most probably some decent human beings. I mean, the, the, I think one of the fascinations about the Civil War is that I mean, this was our one country, and we were brothers, and it was one brother against the other, which has been said over and over again. But, but um, today, we tend to, to say that one side was wrong and one side was right. And it's not as simple as that. It, it, it isn't, certainly, and history is rarely simple. We'll take another break and come back and consider some more deep questions of the past with our guest Karen Winnick, author of Picture Books for Children Set in the Civil War Era. We'll be back with her in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 